um, I think that's one way to do the career tra- transition right, which is um, have your old industry provide value while you learn the new industry. I was a customer expert because I wasn't a customer, right? Um, so I could give it all the product requirements and validate everything before it went out, went out the door. Uh, and I had to learn to work with um, engineers. And then I realized we weren't bottlenecked by like ideas of things to do. We were bottlenecked by the engineers that could execute on them. It is tough, I think, especially whenever you manage across countries. Uh, so this was a remote engineering team, even tougher, uh, but now everybody's remote. So I basically realized that like if I wanted to do it, I should learn to code. Um, and, and that was the ultimate, like, okay, I will learn on nights and weekends. I went through and completed free code camp in six months. And by the end, I was like, okay, I can, I can quit now and, and just go in full time. There's a bunch of us on, on former product managers who became developers. Uh, so I call it team, uh, fine, I'll do it myself. Welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and on this episode 152, I receive Sean Wang. Sean grew up in Singapore. At the age of 30, he set aside his career in trading for web development. Since then, he worked on developer experience for Netlify, AWS, so that's Amazon Web Services, and now Temporal. He is most well known for being a learn in public evangelist, being a regular on the Svelte radio podcast, and maybe his book, The Coding Career Handbook. Sean, a warm welcome to Dev Journey. Thanks, Tim. That was a great intro. <laughs> Thank you. And Sean, as you know, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looked like and then imagine how to shape their own future. So as always, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your tech or your dev journey? Yeah, this is a question I've asked myself as well, because it's not clear where I started. Let's go all the way back. The first programming that I ever did was actually in QBasic when I was maybe about 10 or 11. And this was at school where there was like one small little programming class. Uh, we actually did quite a lot. We we did for loops and variables and if else and, and, and all that. And I think at the final project, we were supposed to deliver some kind of stack algorithm. Like we were stacking pancakes and you're supposed to implement, you know, uh, last in, first out, and then show show that in some, some kind of algorithm. Um, and I remember very distinctly that I, I was very excited about this and I worked really hard to write a UI in QBasic. Uh, so every everyone else did text feedback, like, you know, um, uh, LIFO, but then just, you know, p- return the first result. And, and that was, that was, the, that was it in, in terms of text form. Uh, but I actually visualized it in terms of UI. Um, I wish I <laughs> took the hint because that, that was it after the class ended. I just went back to <laughs> being a regular student. I wish I actually took the hint that I was interested in UI programming because that's ultimately what I ended up doing like 20 years later. <laughs> Uh, do you do you have an idea why you you didn't take the hint as you said uh, back then? Yeah, I don't think I had any role models. Um, I think that was very important. Uh, showing pe- showing me that this was a viable thing. I thought this was just for fun. So I didn't I didn't any I didn't have any role models that I looked up to that were doing this and and actually having success. Uh, actually, later on, I think when I was maybe about fifteen or sixteen, 
uh, I got interested in programming again because we we were doing like a mock startup pitch uh, for you know for kids and stuff like that, um, and we actually came up with something that was very similar to uh, like sending reminders via SMS, um, and that was a project that that we pitched, and I was kind of the uh, product manager type role. Uh, and a, f- a friend of mine was the programmer and he actually did it and it, it kind of worked. And this was a time without Twilio. So he was actually very, very good uh, to, to figure out how to, how to do that without APIs. Um, I'm actually still not sure how he did it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was a, he was a, he was a hacker. He, he knew all the Linux commands and PHP and stuff like that. And I looked at that and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I don't fit that mold. I don't spend all day in terminal. Uh, so I just don't have the required knowledge. Um, so I, I don't feel like I'm a programmer. So that was probably a, a changing point. If I, if I had just been more inquisitive and just tried to learn it and ask for help from him, I would have probably become a programmer about 15, 16 years uh, earlier than, than I eventually did. Wow. Okay. And um, have you had role models since then? And are you a role model, uh, actively uh, playing your role as a role model? Yeah, of course. I, I've, had, I've had many role models since then. I had quite a few role models for the career transition. I think that Free Code Camp gave me a lot of impetus to say, like, okay, this is not, uh, I don't have to have studied computer science to get into the field. And uh, there's many people who've done it. Uh, Quincy Larson himself was used to be an English teacher before he transitioned to uh, a programmer, and now he's a, he, he teaches code. And I, I just realized that there's many of them. Uh, I think, you know, in our pre-chat, we talked about how many people in, in the fields are not formally trained for this job. And I think that's very true. Um, in fact, it, it could be the majority. And uh, it's, it's kind of the only high paying job where this is true. Like if you think about accountants or lawyers or doctors, you all have to go through some f- period of formal training. Whereas programmers, it's actually quite reasonable and very normal to have someone who's more or less self-taught or bootcamp or whatever to reach a very high level of accomplishment. Um, so I think that was very encouraging for me. Um, I did, you know, I did do programming on the side. Um, so I dabbled a bit in VBA when I was doing Excel. At some point, I was uh, trying to scale beyond Excel because Excel is 65,000 roles and I don't know how many columns, but there's a <laughs> limit it's, you know, to how much you can use. Um, so I actually went from VBA, uh, Excel programming, uh, moving to Python, and then from Python moving to Haskell. All of this while not considering myself a programmer because I was just trying to do stuff. Um, so ha- people are very impressed by the Haskell, but literally I spent like a month writing a small utility, and then I used it for work. So I, I you know, I wasn't I wasn't a software engineer. I was someone who learned to learn the thing to to write a, a thing that I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the big transition came from um, when I was in my finance career. Uh, Writing more, writing more tools to help myself and then realizing that I liked the writing of the tools uh, and I was good at it. And I, was, uh, I liked that more than the finance part. So I eventually decided to drop the finance part <laughs> and transition to tech uh, entirely. But I'm, happy to, I'm still happy to talk finance. I think people are very interested in the way that I blend uh, investing in tech. Um, and obviously, it's a, it's a very useful skill. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you consider staying one foot in, in finance yep. and, and oh, continuing yeah. doing those tools for the domain you knew uh, by heart? Yeah, I did. Uh, so the, the longer story is that the, I, didn't, I didn't quit cold turkey. So, you know, I had a very good job um, in, in finance. I, I worked my way up from like a very low level 
uh, sell side trading position uh, all the way to one of the top um, hedge funds in the world. Um, we were three people managing a billion dollars in uh, gross uh, allocation, and uh, you know I, I got I got paid very well. Um, and so trying to step away from that is is always a very challenging. Uh, ego draining endeavor, and, and I wasn't sure that I would succeed in as, as a programmer. Right, I still had that impression from like 15 years ago uh, of my friend who was, you know, a, a Linux god and um, and just already had so much experience in, in PHP, and I was like, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, so what I did was actually spent a year as a product non technical product manager. So um, in finance, we do a lot of trading using Bloomberg. Bloomberg is a very expensive. Uh, SaaS. It was it, it was like the first SaaS company, and it rolls up information plus Slack for Wall Street, you know, plus um, news reporting. Um, so it's a very very valuable service. That's why Michael Bloomberg is a billionaire, um, and we pay something like twenty four thousand a year for it. So every every individual, right? So very very um, premium thing. Uh, and then this product came along that was replacing Bloomberg terminals for us and and for everyone in my office. That costs something like a hundred a month, so it's so it's much cheaper, and it pretty much did the same things. I was realizing like, okay, this is a startup that it's in front of me. I'm interested in changing from finance to to tech. Um, so I actually, uh, when the CEO came to pitch us, I walked him out of the elevator of our hedge fund and I asked him for a job. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, at at the elevator banks uh, because I was I was pretty I was pretty sure I wanted to try this out, um, and if. You know, there was an off chance that this startup could have grown up and replaced Bloomberg. Um, then I would have gotten on the ground floor or something that could be potentially very big. So yeah, he was very happy about that. Actually, he told he told my uh, head of sales, which I became friends with later on, that uh, he, basically his pitch went so well that the pe- people he was he was pitching uh, asked him for a job. You know, you know that's that's the <laughs> kind of sales pitch that he wanted, right? Um, but it was true for me. Was, that's actually what happened. But yeah, so so I spent a year as a non technical pro- product manager. So. Um, I think that's one way to do the career tra- transition right, which is um, have your old industry provide value while you learn the new industry. I was a customer expert because I wasn't the customer, right? Um, so I could give it all the product requirements and validate everything before it went out, went out the door. Uh, and I had to learn to work with um, engineers. And then I realized we weren't bottlenecked by like ideas of things to do. We were bottlenecked by the engineers that could execute on them. Our engineers were not very productive. There's a lot of stories why, but essentially we had 60 engineers and only two good ones. Uh, and every, everyone just like, yeah, everyone just set their stuff to, to uh, everyone set their products um, requests to the two good ones. Uh, and the rest weren't really th- that productive. Um, okay. It is uh, tough, I think, especially whenever you manage across countries. Uh, so this was a remote engineering team, even tougher, uh, but now everybody's remote. <laughs> um so I basically realized that like, if I wanted to do it, I should learn to code. Um, and, and that was the ultimate, like, okay, I will learn on nights and weekends. I went through and completed free code camp in six months. And by the end, I was like, okay, I can, I can quit now and, and just go in full time. There's a bunch of us on, on former product managers who became developers. Uh, so I call it team, uh, fine, I'll do it myself. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I still have a lot of sympathy for that because sometimes, you know, when, when you are translating your ideas or your needs over to an engineer, sometimes they don't have the same investment in it as you do. 
So they might get it wrong or they might have other priorities, right? Like, t- like for example, in my company, we had six product managers eventually all channeling our, our request to the two engineers that were actually good. That's not good. You know, you want, you want to move things ahead and on your own priority. You want to be able to prior- prototype before you send it over as well. So there's all these reasons why you should learn to code yourself. And I eventually decided to, to go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you pick um, one of the many languages, um, one of the many uh, uh, directions you could have gone? Um, how, how did you make sense of all this and, and decide on the first step? Yeah, very good question. Uh, both in my finance career as, as well as the product management role, um, I was writing scripts, right? So I would write a Python script. Uh, it would ingest some data, uh, transform it, and then uh, spit out a report. Uh, but every single time I was essentially the bottleneck, I was going through the IPython notebook and, you know, uh, command enter, command enter, command enter, and that would calculate all, all the steps and uh, it would output things and I would spot a mistake and I'll go fix it and all that. Uh, but I was always the bottleneck. And I realized I wanted to make uh, products and, and things that people could use themselves are, are much more scalable than things that you have to be around to operate and run. Uh, so essentially, I have to make UIs, right? And there's not that many options for choosing for making UIs. You can either do native programming or you can do JavaScript. And essentially, I uh, wound up deciding very quickly that I wanted to j- do JavaScript. I think at that point, I started buying into this idea that open the the idea of the open web, you know, uh, that that uh, software is going to eat everything, and um, if you can remake whatever into Uh, web software, I think that would have the highest chance of uh, being usable and, and open. I think I was very bought into that because I was starting to see that you know happen in, in a lot of the software that I used. For example, uh, Centio, which is the, the the startup that was replacing Bloomberg. Bloomberg used to be a dedicated computer and terminal and keyboard that you had to buy. So instead of that, that eventually evolved into just software, but it was a native application. Um, but Centio was a web application, which was uh, able to be Uh, delivered much easier with with lower uh, onboarding friction as well as um, I guess it, it was just easier is theoretically easier to develop even though our engineers were not <laughs> uh, that productive but uh, it was it, it was it was very clear that uh, the web was a, a good platform to bet on. Were you still trying to scratch your own edges? I mean, solving your own problems, or really with the idea I'm going to build something um, for somebody else. I think I wanted to, I was very keen on the indie hacker movement already. Um, I think indie hackers had been launched around about that time and already got me super interested in this idea of um, building my ideas and and maybe it's a startup or maybe it's just a, sing, a solo project. And I think that's a very powerful feeling to have, right? This is actually partially uh, a reflection of my finance career as well. In finance, you basically don't have any value independently. You have to be part of a bank or you have to be part of a hedge fund. So your your value is conditional upon your employment. And um, I always always felt uh, uncomfortable with that. Like I, I wanted to have um, to say to be able to say like okay if if I don't like working with any of you I can just work for myself and that that level of um, entrepreneurship is um, only possible if you basically learn to code yourself <laughs> so so I think um, I didn't I didn't intend to work on on things with other people but I think I, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome because if you're not formally trained you don't know if you're doing it wrong um, you just you're just doing whatever works and copying stuff of Stack Overflow and you know that that's not going to to last very much. So, so yeah, I, I think what I ended up doing was telling myself that I will learn to code and then work for other people to learn the software engineering practices as like a real software engineer. Um, and then 
and then be able to build whatever I want, you know, for, for, for whoever, for whatever purpose. I think that mostly worked out, but um, I, I definitely have not gone the traditional path of software engineer since then anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure there is a traditional path anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Do you remember when, when the, when the, the bit uh, or the flip switched, the, the switch flipped? <laughs> um, when you felt, okay, now I think I have arrived. I'm, I'm um, enough of a software engineer to call myself a software engineer. People always ask this, but I think it's very simple. When you when your job title says software engineer, you are a software engineer. <laughs> it's a very easy one, right? Uh, so yeah, you know, I, I did a boot camp, and then at the end, uh, Two Sigma hired me, and the the job title and the job offer and everything said uh, software engineer. So at at that point, you know, you have proof that you are a software engineer. So that's uh, that's an easy question. Indeed, indeed, indeed. How how was this this uh, this uh, first job? Getting this first job and and for the first time stepping in as a really as a software engineer not a technical product manager anymore and not somebody else doing oh, tools really how, oh, yeah. how was that um okay so so the the how of getting it um i think this is also very interesting for people considering uh transition which is uh should they do a boot camp or should they self-teach right boot camps are not cheap uh mine was seventeen thousand dollars upfront uh which i actually by the way paid through trading profits so that was also very fun <laughs> uh, literally like uh yeah, yeah, like the the roughly of the amounts of my trading profits for for that uh, first half of the year, I just reinvested into myself, uh, which is which is a pretty cool story to tell. Um, anyway, uh, however you do it, you can finance or whatever. Uh, it's seventeen thousand dollars, and some I think Lambda School even goes up to like thirty k. Depends on how long your your bootcamp is. Uh, is it worth it compared to just self teaching? And I say yes for two reasons. Uh, one is that time is money. Paying, paying somebody to just make you go through a curriculum and then also having someone available to answer your questions whenever you have them is, is worth something, right? Uh, and and uh, that would cost me a lot of time by myself. So let's say I, you know, uh, if I learned everything I'd learned in bootcamp by myself in one year um, and it was accelerated to three months, uh, what is that worth to you? And to me, it, that is worth $17,000, that acceleration. The other thing that I would say is... Uh, it was really helpful, especially for the top boot camps in the US. I'm not sure about uh, you know other parts of the world. Uh, they all have uh, hiring partners, like companies which they know um, have have are open to hiring boot campers and uh, understand and accept the quality of the training that has gone out of there, right? Uh, just on faith. There, when you when you self teach, you don't have any such uh, network to to build on, so you don't really know when you're applying. Like, do they want someone who has a who has you know like a, a weird background and and of course you cannot guarantee that you've covered your bases uh, in terms of uh, curriculum. So a hiring partner system works all of that out for you. So for example, I went to Full Stack Academy in New York. Uh, at the end of the boot camp, they organize a day where every all the employers come to you, um, and that's also a really great uh, idea. So uh, it's kind of like speed dating. There's like about 30, 40 employers, and then you just go around and uh, sit down and, and have a five to ten minute chat. And if they like you, they'll you know, invite you in for on-site and, and you can go on from there. Uh, that's just, just a fantastic way to get into the door because all of them, when they show up, they want to hire, you know, they, they, they're not going to show up and say no to everybody. Uh, so all you got to do is, is try to stand out a little bit compared to your, your bootcamp friends. Uh, that's a very challenging thing because all of you just did 
three months of exactly the same thing. So what do you stand out on? Uh, so for me, it was uh, the ability to bring in my my former career, right? Finance and, and tech. And that was very interesting for Two Sigma. Two Sigma is a quantitative hedge fund. I ended up using zero of that finance knowledge, but it was a good story to tell for for hiring. Uh, but yeah, and, you know, so the, the job job search uh, eventually took about two months. Um, I, I got a I got a bunch of offers. I even interviewed with Google. Uh, but ultimately, I ended up taking the job with the first person I sat down with at that hiring camp. So I could have just done one interview and I just talked to that first company and that's it. But uh, in between, I, I spent two months uh, interviewing everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just it's just luck. Yeah, but um, yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say I'll say uh, getting that first job is is definitely the hardest for a lot of people doing this uh, unofficial transformation. And I think that more companies should be open to open to hiring boot campers. But then also, if you're not, you don't have to hire full time. You can hire. You can do for internships and apprenticeships uh, because the whole point is about getting experience, getting real experience and in, in a real team. And uh, we need to, we need to try to open access to that. And I think it's still too hard for a lot of people trying to break into the industry. Mm-hmm. What, what would be the, uh, the, the blockers you think from, uh, from the employer perspective to saying, well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, there's a reasonable argument against this, which is that it would uh, not be a good experience, right? Like if they're not ready to, to host an intern, they're not ready to host an apprentice, and things are just on fire, and they're like, "Okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ready," you know. And uh, then when they hire an apprentice, um, then they're not going to have a good time. They're not going to. It's not. It's, it's a. It's a misabuse of your responsibility to the intern, right? They're, they're not mm-hmm. free labor. They're they're there to also learn from you. And if you're, you're not able to provide a good learning experience, then uh, maybe you shouldn't be, get involved in that game. So yeah, I, I agree with that, right? Of course, like you, you want to take care of your interns, but I think people are willing to work with you. <laughs> I think that that excuse used gets used a lot, where it probably shouldn't be used. Like um, nothing is ever perfect. No, I, no conditions are ever perfect. And if you just brought someone on that you click with um, that doesn't have a lot of experience but uh, can figure out whatever you give them, um, that's fine. You know, they just need to watch you at work and they need to collect a few months on their resume so that they can use that to go get their next job uh, and eventually become the capable software engineer that everyone that, you know, I think most people can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had, um, I want to say apprentices of your own, but I'm not sure that's, that's the way to say oh, it. But be, being in the right. position of, of hosting apprentices since, uh, since yeah. you started. We had a couple in LFI. Um, so you know, you know, Matt Billman, um, he, one of our, uh, I think our COO at the time, uh, had a very good relationship with his university. So, uh, we, we had a constant intern program from there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I, I liked that a lot. And, um, I had some interns during my, during my finance days, but, uh, no, I haven't, uh, for example, now at Temporal, we are a very small startup, 20 people, and I've brought it up before, but, uh, our CTO says we're not ready. So mm-hmm. that, that it is what it is. Um, I, I don't mind, you know, I, I always, I always have stuff to do that I can hand off, but you have to get buy-in from your management that this is a worthwhile thing and a lot of them they don't have this idea that like it, it's more of like a service to the community than it is beneficial to the business so you have to really um, be open and, and also create some kind of sustainable internship program where it actually results in hires right because that that's ultimately something that i think ctos and uh, vp of engineering really, really respect if if you hire someone as an intern that converts into a full-time employee that's very productive then you've just like skipped a whole bunch of recruiting and a whole bunch of training you've just like built your own internal talent uh, that's fantastic so i think people need to 
try to figure that out more instead of having expensive recruiters uh, go out and hire expensive people who already have a bunch of experience. Um, I don't think that's sustainable because everyone is competing for the same people. Indeed, indeed they are. Well, we were pretty lucky here in Germany. Uh, the uh, the apprenticeship is very regulated, uh, the idea mm. of apprenticeship. So you really have to uh, to uh, to uh, send people to, um, to trainings and have a formal... Um, um, staff taking care of the apprentices and really being keen on, on, on having a follow-up, having a plan, really knowing what they're going to learn in X months, et cetera. But indeed, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a win on the, on the long term. Every, uh, every apprentice we hire is, uh, is, uh, is a big, big win there. They're already, uh, moving even before the end of the apprenticeship. They're already taking a lot of, uh, of, of slack from us. They're taking a lot of work. Um, they, they are really trained on what we do. And so it's, uh, they're really yeah. helping. It's not yeah. apprenticeism anymore, anymore. And so yeah. they're hitting the ground running. Well, that's very cool. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Okay. Um, tell us about learning public because you've been doing a lot on the side. Oh, yes. Uh, so the, the story about this actually goes to Two Sigma. So kind of where we left off. Uh, Two Sigma was uh, not a good job. Uh, it paid very, very well. So um, uh, I don't think, I think I was probably the first person uh, out of the bootcamp that got something on the order of 200,000 uh, a year salary as a fresh bootcamp graduate. <laughs> and that's because Two Sigma um, just has too much money. Uh, so they hired me and then they, and we sat around for four days out of five and we had nothing to do um, because Ouch. yeah, uh, they, they were hiring in advance of something that they needed. And then uh, they didn't have their product management um, put together or figured out. Um, so I was very bored at work uh, to the point where like we would spend one and a half hours at the gym, at the company gym every day. Uh, they'll, they'll be like, they, we had a book budget. So I would buy a book and just read it at work. Uh, it was just, it's fantastic for learning, you know, uh, but not very good for practical experience. Um, so I, so I decided, you know, and, and my, my, my manager was, uh, not very good at react, <laughs> uh, even though we were, we were front end team. Um, so yeah, I decided to make my own experience by starting to, uh, essentially, uh, speak and write in public. So I started to blog, uh, I started to join the New York city meetup scene where we, where I would, uh, essentially like, you know, I wasn't learning anything at work. So I, I forced myself to learn outside of work. That's essentially the, the goal. Um, and I did that for about six months and I realized that I was learning a lot more than, uh, the people around me. And, uh, they were constantly like very appreciative of the stuff that I shared with them. And I realized that, uh, that was also helping me to build a network that, um, would last me longer than any job. So, um, the day that I essentially decided to leave to Sigma was the day that two people, two founders DM'd me on Twitter on the same day, asking me if I wanted to interview with them. So, so that, that was like, okay, like I've built up enough of a network where people are like, I don't need this job. Like even it, as well as it pays, I can just walk out there and get any other job. And w one of the two founders was Matt Billman, who <laughs> he just had on the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I don't know what he saw in me, but like it, it was it was definitely uh, an early bet for him, uh, but hopefully a worthwhile bet because he he got he got me at a at a very uh, early early age early stage. Uh, what I would say, so I was uh, writing a speech for my uh, for, for my boot camp. You know, it's a speech uh, like advice and stuff like that. So when I look back at like the 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 first job and like what worked and what didn't work, I realized that every all the stuff that was in public worked, and all the stuff that was in private was not that useful. Mainly because I didn't have a supportive uh, team for for my professional development. Um, 
but the stuff that was public, um, I could take with me forever, and I could build upon that as a as a uh, personal brand, as a as a developer. I was learning, um, you know, stuff that was useful to bring back into the company. Uh, these are all true things that uh, that was just a, a real insight which I wish I had learned earlier. Um, so I wrote that up as a, a small little speech, uh, I, and then I just posted it online, and it got really viral. Um, and um, and that that was that's essentially the start. I, I became the learning public guy just just from that one <laughs> one post. Um, and and then I think there's a there's a certain amount of like you just have to believe that it's true. Um, and as long as it's as long as it's beneficial for people to hear this message, then I'm happy to be the guy to to repeat it. It's very, it's a bit repetitive, and I want and I and I am interested in more things than that. <laughs> and I worry a bit that like the people who are my friends are like, ah, oh, there he goes again preaching about this thing. <laughs> but like, people really need to hear it. So I I I'm not sorry that that I that I uh, spread spread this message because uh, it is it is very it, it has helped change my life. Um, so I'll give you one more one more anecdote. Which is in finance, uh, the default is very private, right? Everything is confidential. Um, I have written investment memos and, and uh, built some really cool uh, financial models, um, and I will never see that again ever uh, because everything is private by default in finance, right? Um, your your investment ideas are uh, confidential or just like secrets, right? That you don't want to share because it's a very zero sum view of the world. Uh, I think tech is fundamentally more open. And, uh, you know, everything that I did in finance from like 2010 to 2016, I never see again. Like I, I, that part of my life is gone. Um, I don't have anything to show for it now, you know, um, uh, there's no public output. And, uh, and whereas in tech, like you have your, you know, your open source repos, you can look back in time and, and see what you did back then. You can blog about it. And people encourage like sharing your code and going on a conference and like saying like, this is how we solve this problem at, at our company. And that's something that you brag about. Uh, that's not something that is common in other industries. So we should very, we should be very appreciative of the fact that tech is very open to to being public and then take advantage of it. Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. Um, one one aspect that is always or often um, also um, mentioned when talking about the um, uh, learning in public is the the accountability with their quotes. Uh, by oh, yeah. by promoting your ideas, um, you're kind of encouraged to to continue. Um, did you need that or did it help you? Oh yeah, no, no, def definitely needed that. Um, yeah, learning in private is a very um, lonely journey. <laughs> so having feedback and having accountability is very important. Like you can say, uh, I think one of the most successful examples of this is the 100 days of code movement, right? You, you can publicly commit like, hey, I'm going to do 100 days of learning whatever. And then people will hold you to it, right? You know, they're, you're like, oh, hey, you, you missed a day. Uh, what happened? You know, uh, and that's a very good motivator. Um, I think it depends on the person. So there are four types of uh, motivation, like, uh, you know, intrinsic, extrinsic, uh, and then whether you, you uh, try to satisfy internal versus external expectations of yourself. Um, and most people are obligers. So this is the this is called the Four Tendencies Framework by Gretchen Rubin. Um, and obligers basically are, are happy to disappoint themselves. But try not to let, uh, try not to disappoint other people uh, about things that you know they expect of them. So, if you if you promise things to yourself, it, no, if I promise things to myself, I'm very likely to make excuses and say like, oh, okay, I don't have to do it today. Like you know, today it was it was a hard day. I'm just gonna gonna, gonna skip it. Uh, but if I promise things to other people uh, and I have it on the calendar and I said that I will get something done, uh, I will feel the urge to make them to to fulfill my promise because that's. When I make a promise, that's that's what it means. Um, so so I think a lot of people are like that. So 
if you're an obliger, then it, then it really helps to make uh, to make public commitments to, to things. Um, I think the other thing as well that people don't understand. So, so accountability is one of the ways in which learning public works, but there are a long list of reasons why learning public works. Uh, the other reason that I like a lot is public feedback, right? So, um, most people, when they're, when they're encountered with this idea of like blogging or like speaking, they're, they're scared. Like, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll say two things. Either, uh, nobody will read my stuff. So why bother? Or people read my stuff and realize that I'm an idiot. And I think people should understand that both of these things cannot be true. Either someone will read you <laughs> or nobody will read you. Uh, and most likely, most likely nobody will read you, but some will uh, over time. And that will grow over time as you develop uh, your voice and your expertise and your network. So uh, the, the ability for learning through feedback is very important because once you've been publicly wrong about something, you will never forget it, right? Um, and and that's that's also very important. Uh, that this idea that uh, you can essentially build a second brain, um, which is this <laughs> idea from um, Tiago Forte. I'm actually mentoring for his class, uh, which is starting next month. You can essentially build a second brain where you have a public store of all your information that you've accumulated that you organize for yourself that people can review and correct you on. Uh, that's amazing, uh, and I've been uh, very lucky to to do that. Um, and, and, and have benefited from people teaching me the stuff that I didn't know that I, uh, I, I was wrong on. Right. So, so that's, that's a really good, uh, effort. And then <laughs> there's this idea of like a third brain, right? Like, um, having friends that you can rely on for knowledge. Uh, so you don't really own this knowledge, but you can tap on them anytime you need. So like, I don't need to know, uh, Webpack if I'm friends with Sean Larkin, uh, who, who's, who's one of the maintainers of Webpack. That's just one example. I, I always use it all the time because, uh, which is pretty ironic because I've never asked him for <laughs> for help on webpack stuff. But um, I just think it's I just think it's pretty cool. Like uh, I, I'm friends with a lot of maintainers of the the software that I use, and uh, obviously respect their time. Uh, but if I really need to, I can rely on them to 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 help me out because I've provided them some sort of value in the past. Mm -hmm. That that's very important. Networks are, are um, very uh, underestimated. I think mm. it's uh, it's one of the things that is uh, that is really make or break of a, of a career or not necessarily career in going up, but career in uh, in uh, broadening your knowledge. That's that's very important. Um, staying staying on the learning public. Um, when you wrote your book, I would be interested in the book itself, but also the um, did you write the book in public? Did you get this feedback early on on your oh, book yeah. and then try to how, how did you do that? I basically decided to do the book uh, when I was waiting between between my Netlify and AWS job. I had two months off. And I was like, okay, let's try it for a project, right? Um, and essentially, I started writing a book. I announced it on day one uh, and sold an empty PDF uh, for four thousand dollars, which is pretty, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, and that's just that's just a result of uh, having many years of blogging behind me and people trusting me enough that like, okay, like. Even based on the stuff that you've already written, I'm happy to pay you <laughs> some money, uh, and I'll that trust that cool. you finish the book. Um, and then you update them, you know, as you go along. So this is why I'm a, I'm a fan of pre-selling because essentially the hardest thing to to sell a book is word of mouth. Um, and what what better way to get word of mouth than pre-selling something and having people pay you for the privilege of seeing you. Uh, of getting your updates from you and then seeing like how much effort you put into the book. And so that when you launch, uh, you have a bunch of already happy customers uh, vouching for you. I think that's a, that's a fantastic way of, of uh, doing this stuff. Um, so yeah, I built a, I built a, a lot of the book in public. Um, so one quarter of the book is the best of my blog posts that I've uh, gone through and uh, revised and edited and updated for, you know, 
book quality <laughs> writing. <laughs> and then the three quarters is, uh, is new stuff. And then what I did was essentially uh, live stream some parts of the writing. So um, I had one chapter on how to market yourself um, and I just live streamed five hours of it. And so people could see my writing process um, and could see the content, see my plan for it. Um, and that, that's one way to market the book, which is like, okay, this is the amount of effort and quality that I can expect from one chapter. Uh, so hopefully I, I will like it enough that I'll, that I'll want to see the rest of the chapters. Uh, so I did that twice. Um, and uh, it, it got, re it did really well because I, I knew the marketing thing people were very interested in, like, uh, developers want to know how to, how to market themselves, but don't really see themselves as marketers. So, uh, there's, there's a, there's a gap there. Yeah. I mean, actually by the end, I took down the live stream because I already launched the book. I took down the live stream and then sold it as part of a premium package. <laughs> so if you wanted to see it, uh, you know, you had to, you had to pay a bit more money. Um, and that's a, that's one way of reusing the stuff that you you produce, right? You seem you can seem more prolific if you can figure out creative ways of reusing things that you already do. Like I was already going to spend some time writing the book, but um, being able to live stream it, record it, and then sell it as a, a premium access video um, that was very valuable to some people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mixing mediums is always also interesting. <laughs> and I'm a very uh, uh, um, lover of audiobooks and and getting uh, books from uh, from the audio feed and podcasts and stuff. So yeah, everybody takes a what like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's cool. So um, I'd like to steer the discussion one more time. Um, you're doing developer experience now. Um, for, first of all, I'd be interested in uh, what, what your definition of, of, of developer experience is. And then I see some kind of underlying uh, uh, pattern when you started doing tools for yourself as, uh, as a, a, a developer, when you say, well, I want to have a UI to create tools again. And developer experience in my world is in tools. So how did that connect all this together? Oh, interesting. Okay. So um, th those are not that connected, in, in my opinion. So um, the way I got into this was essentially uh, when uh, Matt Billman uh, DM'd me to interview for for Netlify. Um, was, he actually wanted me to to do a sales uh, like a solutions engineer position, uh, and I failed that interview. <laughs> but they gave me a second shot, and and uh, ended up becoming uh, a developer relations uh, for them. Their second developer relations hire, um, but. They actually called it developer experience engineer, uh, and that's just a way of rebranding the developer relations job uh, to have a bit more of an engineering focus. Um, for example, building open source tools and demos and stuff like that. Um, and that has really become uh, a focus of my career, I guess, because uh, that's what I went on to do. At I mean, I, I did that at Netlify. Uh, Netlify now is very well known for developer experience, and then uh, I went on to do that same thing at AWS. And now I'm head of developer experience at Temporal, which is a still very weird thing to say because um, I'm head of a department that just has me. Um, we we <laughs> we did hire we did hire our first uh, developer relations uh, person, but um, it still still feels very early to, to call yourself head of anything. Anyway, hopefully hopefully that will grow over time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so on one part, developer experience is just a Silicon Valley tech industry rebranding of developer relations trying to gotcha. build in more of an engineering expertise and saying like, okay, we're not just about uh, going out and traveling the world and doing talks. Uh, we're also about building integrations. And uh, like I worked on a VS code extension for, for Netlify um, and uh, building prototypes. So I helped to do uh, to, I helped to build Netlify dev, which, which was one of our biggest launch uh, ever 
at Netlify, uh, where I just worked on CLI for, for like three months straight. Uh, so that's not what a typical developer advocate does. And uh, that's just a bit more engineering focused. Um, mm-hmm. With regards to building tools for yourself. Uh, so I, I, I do encourage people to build tools as side projects, right? Like um, I have uh, my own custom Twitter search uh, tool because uh, the default Twitter search is not good enough for me. Uh, I have my own Google proxy where I can Google stuff and it um, sends me raw uh, a, a raw page with not with like, very little JavaScript, like I think three kilobytes of JavaScript, uh, and it loads a lot faster. Why? It's because um, I'm international and I'm on a roaming data plan, so that my internet, my mobile internet is very slow, and the default uh, Google page sends you hundreds of kilobytes of JavaScript that I don't need. Uh, so essentially, I proxy it server side and then just send HTML. So uh, stuff like small tools like that, I think, are very helpful. Um, and you, you can you can come up with hundreds of these ideas, right? You can customize the CSS for GitHub, which uh, a lot of people do, right? Before GitHub had official dark mode, people had browser extensions for for GitHub, and, and I've done that as well. I've done I've done little tools for for um, for Netlify for AWS. And I think it's just a, a powerful experience for yourself that. Uh, and you can try tools in 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 a small enough capacity that would improve at least your life. Even if nobody else uses it, you'll still win, you know. And I really like playing games that I still win where even if nobody else plays with me. But there's a chance, right? There's a chance that I can share it with the world and and maybe become uh, very famous or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> nothing like that has happened for me. <laughs> but uh, but I still I still think that people should build tools for themselves because it's a really good way to experience the full cycle of like planning something, designing something, shipping it, maintaining it, uh, all that stuff. And I also think that you should try to, to make things for money, right? So the book is essentially, I mean, it's, it's, you know, 90, 99% of non-technical projects, but I, there are some technical elements to it, like uh, building the the landing page and uh, integrating with Stripe. And these are all new things for me because um, I had never handled Stripe stuff uh, before. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think when you take money for something, you re- start to appreciate on the non-technical sides of your companies that you work at, right? The marketing department, the <laughs> the uh, uh, PR departments, wh- whatever else it is, design, design. Oh my God. <laughs> design is so important. Uh, and uh, you don't think about these as a developer and, and maybe you should. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A very, very good uh, answer uh, about all building your stuff. And uh, that links back to the India hacker scene we talked about and uh, definitely about the uh, fine I'll do it myself team, uh, <laughs> scratching your own each. And, and really it's empowering, empowering to be able to um, to have an idea and just roll it out and, and do it yourself. And, being able yeah. to really solve your own problems. That's something um, I really personally love as well, being able to do that and, and really um, not not uh, uh, be sad and not having the solution I need and just do it. <laughs> That's really empowering. Yeah, there's a, there's a question. Uh, this is actually one of the chapters in the book. Um, there's a question of like, how much should you specialize versus how much should you generalize? Right. When mm-hmm. you, whenever you say I'll do it myself, that's a form of generalizing, generalizing yourself, right? Like you are saying, okay, I'm going to stop going deeper in my current field and I'm going to go patch up the holes that I have in all the other fields that I have, which there are, there are infinite number of holes. Um, and so the, the advice I think that, uh, makes the most sense to me is when in doubt, you should specialize. And then when you're, when, when necessary, you should generalize because you're always going to be pushed towards generalizing when you least expect it, right? Like, um, hey, someone left on, on my team. Uh, can you take over this for me? Oh, but then, then you're like, oh no, I don't have training for it. They're like, I don't care, just figure it out. And then that's that's you 
that's them forcing you to generalize. Uh, so that's a very similar thing to like shipping your, your side projects for money. Uh, you're forced to learn about conversion and SEO and design and uh, maybe hiring contractors. I hired two contractors and that was a very interesting experience as well. Um, and that's nothing to do with being a developer. Uh, so, so those are very useful things if you want to be self-sufficient. But a lot of people specialize and don't bother being self, self-sufficient, right? If you're like the, the Google SRE who knows how to uh, run like, you know, a large-scale data center um, with, with failovers and replication and stuff like that, um, that only makes sense for a company the size of Google. Like every other company does not have that kind of problem. But if, because you specialize so much in it, then you're the world's expert in, in you know, this stuff. Uh, and therefore, because the, the impact that you have uh, can, can, can be very valuable for, for a company, uh, they'll, they'll pay you uh, very well for that. So I think, I think it's worth specializing uh, rather than, than generalizing uh, when in doubt, because eventually you'll be forced to generalize. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that's an interesting thing. I've never heard it uh, verbalized this way. I'm going to ponder this a little bit more. Thank, yeah, thank yeah, you very yeah. much. Because uh, the, the other thing, the other argument for, for doing this as well is because um, there's a lot of common advice on how to generalize, like how to get you know uh, blogging 101, like design 101. Um, it takes a lot of commitment and effort to become an expert, to learn how to learn, uh, to learn how to get past the, the the hump of like, okay, everyone stops here usually, um, and then and then push past that and and go become one of the the real experts in that, um, and so. Uh, there's there's sort of uh, the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition, which is like a five-stage model. Once you get to that stage, that is a way of learning as well. So once you've specialized in something enough that you've become an expert, you realize how how what it's like to go so deep into something that you're a world's foremost authority on that. And you, you're much better able to appreciate that uh, in other people. You're much able to, you're much better able to appreciate like when you learn something and you and you learn what everyone else knows, you realize that that's not the end of it. Uh, probably half of what you learned is wrong, and the real experts know which half of it <laughs> is wrong, and <laughs> and which how, how the rules are changing uh, while you learn the rules. It's very it's a very interesting thing. And then the final piece of why you should specialize is that once you're a specialist in something, that becomes a valuable skill that you can trade with other specialists, right? So you no longer need to do everything yourself. You can say like, I'm the expert in SEO or whatever, um, and uh, you know I can trade that against uh, someone who's an expert in design. Uh, and that's a valuable trade versus being like 30% or 50% in everything and just mm-hmm. being a uh, jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So uh, last question was one eye on the clock. Um, when you're not forced to generalize, where do you personally uh, specialize? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, right now, <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting because like I, I'm essentially being forced to... Uh, spe- I, I'm essentially specializing in this idea of um, learning in public. Um, and being an independent, uh, or like part-time creator is, is what I call it. Uh, this idea that um, when you do a job, um, you should try to not go, not end the week uh, with with uh, everything in the, done for the company and nothing done for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, the, the the one thing that, you know, will, will stay with you forever is the stuff that you do uh, publicly, right? So I, I do want to encourage people to do that. Uh, essentially, you know, I, I run a community for the book, uh, for, for people who bought the book. Um, and I, I'm in there every day. I'm, I'm maintaining that, um, and and just trying to develop this specialization in like know everything there is to know about what it's like and what what it's like to encourage people to learn in public and to to uh, help them solve their problems. Because uh, I think it's it's helped me change change my life, and um, I, I I can see it changing other people's lives as well. 
So uh, it's the one thing that like, I think I just like randomly got lucky into it and I'll be uh, stupid to not keep going. <laughs> you have two thumbs up for me. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Um, it's been an avalanche of advices, but uh, that's that's the uh, usual end of the show. Um, do you have any advice for maybe getting into this learning public? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, this is a blog post that I've also written called Pick Up What They Put Down, which is uh, huh. what I call the, the, the learning public hack. Uh, for how to solve the cold start problem, right? Essentially, everyone has this cold start problem of like, um, okay, I don't have any readers, but I need readers to improve. Uh, so how how do I get how do I solve that, right? Um, and the answer, the way to guarantee feedback on your stuff is to write about something that someone else is actively doing, right? Um, to to literally to guarantee feedback, give feedback. That's that's essentially the the long and short of it. So uh, if someone put out a new blog post or a new demo or a new library, a new book. Um, actually go and read it and give feedback on, or build upon it, um, which is very similar to like the uh, culture of improv, um, where instead of letting someone, you know, put their stuff out there and then you're like, okay, very nice. And then you move on. Uh, you you actually take what they said and then you improvise on that. You you say yes and, and you go like, okay, so so based on what you just did, here's another thing that, that triggered my memory. It makes for a very good conversation, but also you can have a conversation through your writing, your code, your whatever you, you do. Um, and, and being in active conversation with these makers, uh, it's, it's typically um, something that is just, it's just very rare. Like nobody does this. Um, when a lot of people are lurkers, right? Like when, I, when someone uh, announces their new demo or new library, a lot of people will just like passively see it. Uh, but if you actively comment and go through and if you like find a bug, then they will really appreciate you, right? Uh, and that's a way to sort of permissionally apprentice yourself to 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 some of the greatest figures in the industry, right? Um, the example I always use is Andre Karpathy, who is uh, the head of machine learning at Tesla. He put out a, a, a machine learning library recently uh, that got a lot of likes and retweets and people talking about it, but not that, not that many people will try it out because everyone's busy. Everyone thinks that Andre Karpathy is like a some rock star programmer. Uh, but no, he wants feedback just like everyone else. And if you can give good quality feedback, and if you can help him uh, translate it to, uh, in, in your own words, to to maybe people who don't get it as as well as you do, um, then you can become a really good collaborator with him, um, and and you can bootstrap your network and your expertise off of someone that's already an, an expert in your industry. So, long story short, I think when you do this, pick up what they put down idea. Um, you're, you're just focusing in on people that you want to learn from and work with and and, and grow that network um, organically rather than trying to grow a generic audience, right? Like uh, a generic audience would be something like, um, here's like intro to JavaScript 101. And then you, you like write the same article that thousands of people have already written. That's not a conversation with anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um Something that's live—that that is a conversation that 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 people have just put out, and they're almost obligated to read what you wrote because you're writing about them. So I th- I really like that. Uh, fantastic! <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, reading the, the blog post and getting more into the details with it. Thank you very much. <laughs> very very cool. Yeah. Um, Sean, where uh, would be the best place to find you online and maybe uh, continue the discussion with you? Yeah, uh, my site is at swix.io. Um, I also have a newsletter, which I send out a week, every week on like the, the best stuff that I uh, find and read. Um, and I also have a <laughs> personal mixtape, which is a, uh, which is like an almost daily podcast of like things where I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I slip like five minute audio clips 
which I think are interesting. And then I just play them in my own uh, mixtape library. Uh, this is a new project for me. I, I don't I don't know how long I can last of it because it does take some effort. Uh, but I really like games where I cannot win um, because then I can just get creative and weird and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. People, uh, all the links will be uh, in the show notes um, and uh, go get there and, and uh, give Sean some feedback. We've heard it. It's important. Sean, Thank you very, very much. It's been really fantastic and a privilege to uh, hear your story. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks, everyone. Oh, uh, oh, I should probably also say that uh, if you want to get the book, um, <laughs> I would like to leave uh, a, a coupon for, for people who are uh, interested in getting the book. So uh, if you go to learningpublic.org slash question C equals <laughs> dev230, uh, that will give you 30% off the book um, and, and, and everything else on the site. Um, I think I'll just drop you a link to, to make it easier because I don't mm-hmm. think I made that very intuitive. I don't know. I, <laughs> we, I we'll like, add it in the show as well. Brand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Thank you very much, John. And this has been another episode of Depot's Journey and we'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That's definitely the first time I've heard of someone quitting a such highly paying job as a trader to become a developer. But I love Sean's energy. I, I love his pragmatism and, and the depth of his knowledge. It, it was amazing to hear, hear him talk, even briefly, about the tendencies of motivation and the psychological effects of working in public. That was really, really cool. What do you take out of this story? Please reach out and tell me. Your messages are the fuel to keep this podcasting engine running. You can reach me on Twitter, I'm at Timothep, or per email uh, at info at devjourney.info, or use the comments on our website, devjourney.info. I found Sean's idea of picking up what others put down really inspiring, but the one quote that has been in my mind since the recording is the following, when in doubt, you should specialize. You should generalize only when necessary. I have started analyzing my whole career in this light, and it's been an amazing journey. When did you last specialize, and in which ways? And how is this Dev Journey podcast helping you there? I'd love to know. <laughs>